I am J.A. Lovelock, a barrister and an author, but most importantly, a crime junkie. Welcome to my podcast, Behind the Yellow Tape. Two years ago, I created a crime podcast. This consists of two elements. One is interviewing anyone who's had a relationship with the criminal justice system. The other element is telling the story of a murder case from a bygone time, and it's usually one with some controversy and almost certainly results in the execution of the convicted. It's a subject I have an enormous interest in. So imagine how I felt when I found out that the Museum of London, Docklands, had put on an exhibition covering over 700 years of public executions in London starting from 1169 to 1868. Naturally, I wanted to find out more about the exhibition, especially as it so happened that the most recent podcast I dropped was the case of the last woman to be executed in public in 1868. And who better to tell us more than Beverly Cook, curator of social and working history at the museum? Hello, Beverly, and welcome to Behind the Yellow Tape. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Oh, you're very, very welcome. Now, the first thing I want to ask you is, what prompted the museum to come up with this idea of exhibition of executions? Well, I think the whole subject matter of public executions is something that um, is very little known about. And yet it was such a key feature of London life. Uh, for over 700 years. And it would be something that would have been part of the collective experience of living in London at that time. And we felt it was very important to sort of shine a light on this dark history of London's past and to show visitors not just about the executions themselves, but also how this practice of state violence <laughs> was really embedded in London society and landscape and economy. So you felt there was a need for this at this time? I think so. Yes, definitely. I mean, obviously, it's a very challenging subject matter. but And a lot of people might feel that it's completely irrelevant to our day-to-day life today. Uh, But actually, when we dug deep into the research and particularly looked at some of the personal stories around those who were condemned to a public death, there are really interesting similarities between our society today and the past. I suppose one of the biggest of those is the fact that London always has struggled with the issue of how to keep a growing urban population safe from crime. And that's something that will never leave uh, London. And at at the heart of it, that's the essence of the story of public execution, as is um, other stories that are enduring, like visible justice for victims, the effects of poverty, and an urban, growing urban population on sort of like on the effects of crime and everything and crime figures, the fear of crime as much as the crime itself. And um, I think these are really interesting similarities that we try to bring out in the exhibition. Well, clearly, there are quite a lot of cases to cover of over 700 years. How did you start and where did you start? (laughs) 
So we felt it was very important to actually start with clear documentary evidence. And obviously, a lot of uh, we're assuming that a lot of public executions took place before our start date of 1196. But we wanted to start where we knew that we would be able to trace the history very accurately through records and documents. And we also thought it was very important to bring to life certain personal stories, perhaps ones that then had an impact on how crime and punishment moved forward and changed. And, you know, quite a few of our characters, you know, their cases became controversial, they became very well known, and often may have led to people questioning the whole practice of public execution. And that, for example, miscarriages of justice, those types of cases, which we felt were very important to feature because they had a wider impact than just the crime, the trial and the execution itself. As a matter of interest, are there any surviving relatives of some of those who were executed and have you been in touch with them? We haven't been in touch with any surviving relatives. Um, At the end of the exhibition, we have a roll call of over 5,000 names of people who were publicly executed. And one of the reasons we felt it was important to do that was because we are aware that a lot of people are doing family history these days. They may have had ancestors who were publicly executed, and we felt that it was important for them to come and see perhaps the name of their forgotten, you know, Londoner. Um, These were people who wouldn't have been remembered necessarily in other respects, and it's sort of like remembering them um, through acknowledging their fate. Now, this exhibition just focuses on London, Because I have reviewed cases where executions took place in Liverpool, Lincoln Castle, Birmingham and other places, of course. And is it because it is the Museum of London? Why are you just focused on London? Yes. So we are very clear in the exhibitions that we do that we just focus on London. We don't look at other parts of the country or beyond. And there is a In this case, for the story of public execution, London played a very key role. It was known as the City of Gallows and even the bloodiest city of Europe because it did execute more people than any other country within Europe. And I think the other relevance to London is always the fact that it's the capital. And even if people committed high-profile crimes outside of London, particularly things like treason, they were often brought down to London to be executed. And a key example of of that, of course, is William Wallace, who was arrested in Scotland, but brought down to London to be executed at Smithfield. Well, let's talk about some of the offences that would lead to the death penalty, which would lead to someone being executed. What would some of those offences be? Well, you tend to find that in the earlier uh, periods, uh, right up to the 16th, early 17th century, due to the instability of the monarchy and the government, uh, there are a lot of crimes committed, well, people are executed for crimes like treason, heresy, of course, religious persecution was a key factor as we move from a Catholic to a Protestant nation and back again, tyranny, 
rebellion, rioting, or these sorts of crimes against the state were some of the key reasons why people were publicly executed. You know, obviously, this was to act as a deterrent against others plotting against uh, overthrowing the government. But then as we become a more urbanized and industrial city, you tend to find that people were being publicly executed more for crimes against property. And that's because obviously property became a very valuable asset in society to those who were able to own it. And so all of a sudden, you get a lot of extra crimes against property being added to what was referred to as the capital code, so much so. But by the middle to the end of the 18th century, there are over 200 crimes for which you could be condemned to a public death. Some of those were very similar because it's a bit like case law, you know, they were added on and on, you know, they, for example, a crime like forgery, there were probably about 20 different descriptions of that crime that were all very similar. So the list of over 200 crimes is actually probably less than that. It's just that, um, it, you know, it, it was just the way that crimes were added to the capital code made it a very wieldy process because obviously it became anyone who was then going to trial and was convicted was literally being given a a death sentence and it became very unworkable. So what was the impact on society at the time of these executions? So the whole idea of public executions, of course, was about visible justice, you know, for, for victims and survivors but also to act as a deterrent uh, for those who might be contemplating similar crime. So the whole process of public execution in London was really bound up with sort of state power, this sort of demonstration of state power. And because of that, it was often associated with pageantry and spectacle. So when the Tyburn gallows were open, which was from the 16th century up to 1783. Tyburn was the main execution site in London at that time. You would find that uh, there would be a procession from Newgate Prison where the condemned were held near the Old Bailey. And it would be a couple of miles from the Old Bailey down to Tyburn. And, And during that procession, the crowds would come out, they would watch the procession, this pageantry, this spectacle, the military might of London, the mayor and people like that uh, would be part of the procession down to Tyburn. That sounds very odd to me, listening to this now. Yes, and of course the poor condemned would be sitting on the carts on which they would then be executed because when they arrived at Tyburn, they would be hung from the carts. So the noose would be tied around their neck and the carts would be, the horses would be driven forward. And that was the way they were executed. So it must have been a terrible journey. Yes. A terrible yes. few miles journey. Yes. Yeah. For them, um, yeah. you know, knowing that this was their last journey through the streets of London. Yes. The yeah. crowds would be amassing, you know, they yeah. would be conscious that there was a crowd 
sometimes a supportive crowd. Mm. Not everyone mm. who was mm. sent to a public execution was was heckled. Mm. You know, there was quite a lot of support for some of the executed. But what a terrible journey they yes. were enduring. Yeah, yeah. Down to Taiwan. And the crowds were thousands, weren't they? Thousands came out to watch this spectacle. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah, there could be for, for um, I mean, the public were often very well informed by the time of a public execution. Uh, they, like today, there was an insatiable appetite for crime, particularly salacious crime or controversial crime. Murders in particular attracted a lot of attention like they do today. And therefore, the, the the street sellers, the street literature sellers would have been printing information about the uh, not just the crime, but also the trial and the fact that these people were being condemned to death. And the public would then have been aware of when those executions were taking place. So the, the crowd was often very well informed by the time the execution took place. And that's had an impact on how they were towards those being executed. Because if they sympathised with uh, with the person who was being executed because perhaps they felt that the crime didn't deserve um, execution, then the crowd were often very respectful towards the person being executed, but they might have heckled the executioner, for example. But if they really thought that the crime was terrible, you know, it was uh, one of the most heinous crimes ever, then obviously they would uh, shout at the actual person who was about to be executed. So it was an added punishment, really, apart from being, you know, having to suffer That's right. uh, yeah. death by execution, yeah. Yeah. this yeah. sort of whole public sphere and public spectacle around executions was really regarded as an additional punishment for those mm who were condemned to death. And as you say, possible use of the deterrent. This idea of whether it was ever a deterrent was something that was argued in Parliament extensively when there was a discussion in the 1860s around whether public executions should end. And it's quite interesting because I always think of those who've witnessed public executions in two different uh, categories. There was what we might refer to as the London mob, um, which was a lot of young men, apprentices, et cetera, et cetera. And then there was the crowd, which was very different. It came, people who viewed public executions came from a range of backgrounds. They observed public executions for all sorts of different complex reasons. Boswell, for example, observed about 17 public executions and he felt it was a way of sort of confronting his mortality. And then there was people like Charles Dickens who observed public executions because they were concerned about how these events were brutalising the crowd rather than acting as a deterrent. And people like Dickens, who spoke out against the impact of public executions on the crowd, were part of the argument that was used in Parliament against public executions and ending the practice. Can you think of anyone who escaped the gallows? Well, yes, strangely enough, John... Well, I think one of my great London heroes is Jack Shepherd. He didn't ultimately escape the gallows, but he was a thief. He was a very talented apprentice carpenter. He turned to crime at quite a young age, as a lot of apprentices did. 
uh, due as a result of poverty. Although it was also said that he was led astray by by lewd women. Oh, oh. <laughs> I don't actually believe that that's <laughs> He was obviously a very strong character. He was condemned to death a couple of times, and a couple of times he managed to escape Newgate Prison mm. through his talent. How did he do that? Well, he managed to smuggle in files, uh, which allowed him to cut through chains and to escape somehow. I I would imagine that he might have had a little bit of help as well inside the prison. But of course, because of this, his escape from from Newgate, which was London's most iconic Mm -hmm. prison, you know, this sort of place of terrible, overbearing suffering, he became a huge hero. Unfortunately, he did actually fail to escape a third time (laughs) and he did have to go to the gallows in 1724. He was only 22 at that age. Yeah, He was already, you know, this um, huge hero because he had had the audacity to, you know, sort of defy the authorities on those occasions and young apprentices like himself obviously loved him. And he hadn't committed a a terrible crime. His crime was being a thief and robbery. Mm. So it wasn't as if he was particularly hated as someone who was vile. And I think his story is, is really interesting because I always think of Londoners as being very resourceful. And perhaps Jack was like the ultimate resourceful Londoner <laughs> in, term, in the way that he um, he sort of confronted his fate I know you say that he was only 22. I find Mm. in my research when I'm doing my cases, they all seem to be so young. Yes. I think one of the reasons that they're often very young is if, if you have a career as a criminal now, obviously you're not executed. So you could have maybe a 40 year career as a criminal in and out of prison over 40 years. And obviously, you you would then be released, you know, regularly to be able to commit more crimes. But of course, that didn't happen if you were executed. So people who might have become career criminals in the 18th century didn't have that opportunity, Mm. because the first time they were caught, they were potentially condemned to death. And I think that's possibly one of the reasons why you have so many young people. Obviously, a 22-year-old in the 18th century had quite a lot of life experience as well by then. You know, there was huge poverty in London, as there is today, but there was less protection for young people then. And people were probably more prone and vulnerable to entering a life of crime as a result of poverty than perhaps they are today, where we have the benefit of a welfare state to support us. Now, the exhibition includes a showcase of a range of fascinating objects. Can we have a look at some of them as to what they may expect? Yeah, so obviously it's it's really great to do an exhibition where you can dig deep into the museum's collections are so rich and varied and shine a light on objects that sometimes have never been seen before by, by visitors uh, to the museum. And one of these most powerful objects, I feel, is a bed sheet that was actually used by James Radcliffe, the third Earl of Derwentwater. So one thing I have never heard of is the convict's love token. 
What's what's that? And tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so th- this beca- uh, this became quite a trend in Newgate Prison that people are, are either awaiting execution or transportation would engrave smoothed coins uh, with a dedication, a sort of message to loved ones. And that's because it was sort of something that was very hardy. It wouldn't destroy in the same way that maybe a letter would. And they were left and they were gifted to loved ones by by the prisoners. And we have quite a large collection, actually, in the Museum of London. Speaking of letters, last letters of the condemned, what, what do they normally consist of? Yeah, so again, we have a really interesting collection of um, letters written from the condemned cell in the Museum of London. We've selected eight of these for display in the exhibition. And it's quite interesting. We often refer to them as last letters, but I think they're not maybe what we would associate with a last letter. You know, if we think of being condemned to death, you would assume that your last letter would be uh, a letter to your loved ones or a letter declaring your guilt or your remorse. And But some of the letters we've selected are quite intriguing. There is also a more emotive um, traditional last letter, which was written by William Sapwell, who was actually executed for murdering a police officer in 1830. And his letter is quite sad because it's a long letter and it's declare he is continuously declaring his innocence mm. one of the cases i worked on recently where the jury recommended mercy and the judge sent it up to the home secretary and the home secretary did not grant mercy and i always find it interesting that although the jury will find the defendant guilty of murder, they still would turn around and say, but could you please show them some mercy? And something that is of real interest, um, going back to the collection, is the vest that is said to have been worn by King Charles I at his execution. That is a mossy. This yes, it's it, and it's one of the most important objects probably in the Museum of London's entire collection, and it's it's been great that we've been able to put it on display because it is incredibly fragile. And speaking of dress, how were the condemned dress for their execution? Yeah, it's really interesting because obviously people knew that they they were going to be on public display. And a lot of people thought very carefully about what they might wear to their execution. And Elizabeth Fry even noticed that. Obviously, she was a very well-known visitor to Newgate Prison and particularly to the women's side of the prison. And she said that it became almost like an obsession with a lot of the women who were about to go to public execution. And it's often felt that sometimes what they wore was symbolic So, for example, there's a case of Eliza Fenning, who was executed in 1815 on very dubious evidence that she was had supposedly attempted to poison 
the household in which she worked as a cook with arsenic in dumplings. <laughs> and uh, she went to her execution dressed in a white muslin gown. And a lot of spectators and people who observed her um, execution believed that she did that as a declaration of her innocence. But we can't be 100% certain. Mm -hmm. She didn't actually say why she chose that gown. Some people speculated that it was actually the gown that she was due to be married in. And others say, well, actually, white Mm -hmm. muslin gowns were very popular in the early 19th century, as we know from Jane Austen. Yes. So it might just have been a gown that she had to have in her wardrobe, her best outfit. But people did... It was almost as if they knew that this was their last chance, you know, to sort of make a make a present, you know, that they were a presence. They wanted mm. to perhaps stand out as um, their dignity, their innocence. Um, and I think particularly women would have thought very hard about, you know, what they were going to wear at their execution, which is very sad. You know, it's. I think it's one of those tragic things, really, because, you know, these were people who had no hope by then. Yes. You know, they were not going to be reprieved mm-hmm. and their only last thoughts mm-hmm. were, well, how do I present myself? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think it was often very difficult to understand how they were going to uh, be emotionally when they were faced with the gallows. Uh, but they perhaps deciding what they were going to wear was a way of sort of like that was something they had control over in advance whereas obviously they may not have had control over their emotions when faced with death yeah yes yes I, I I would agree with that actually I would agree with that now Newgate prison is no more of course but there is a door tell us about that door So when Newgate Prison was demolished in 1902, people realised that this was one of London's most iconic landmarks, you know, this place of despair, suffering, pain uh, for hundreds of years. And a lot of the land, the architecture and was, was preserved. And in the 1920s, the Museum of London acquired quite a lot of the architecture and the relics from Newgate Prison. And one of these is on display in, in the exhibition, and that's the what used to be referred to as the debtor's door. And this was very important for our story because it was actually the last door that those condemned to a public death would have exited from, from the prison on their way to the scaffold outside Newgate. So it dates from about 1780 when the prison was being rebuilt. And in 1783, Tyburn closed as the main execution site in London. And they moved executions to outside Newgate Prison on a temporary scaffold that would have been erected on the early hours of the morning of executions. So it has a very powerful and emotive presence in the gallery because It's in an area where there are the letters written from the condemned cell. So we get a sort of sense of the presence of people in in that space, in the gallery, Um, the personal stories coming out. And then we look at the door and we imagine some of those people who have written the letters um, actually moving towards the door and hearing the crowd 
as they exited onto the scaffold that was just a few steps away from them. And it was wonderful that we've been able to display it in the exhibition because it's very heavy, so we had to ensure it wasn't going to uh, go through the floor. And thanks to our technicians, we've been able to, to present it in a very powerful way. And as a curator, obviously, I have great faith in objects uh, being able to deliver very powerful stories. And that is a classic example of an object being loaded with emotion and power. And it's a very reflective object as well. That is another must see. So a lot of history, very interesting history to take in there. And Beverly, I want to thank you very much for your time, which is so much appreciated. Thank you very much. And just to remind everyone, the exhibition is open until April the 16th. So that's just after Easter. And you will be fascinated and be well informed about London's past history of executions. It's an education. Thank you very much, Beverly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So thanks for listening. Join us next time as we go behind the yellow tape and catch up with more episodes at btytpodcast.com as well as on all podcast platforms. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.